Minter Dialogue, episode number 448. My name is Minter Dialogue, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or check out other shows on the network, please do go and visit evergreenpodcasts.com. I'd like to give out a shout out and thanks to Alex Strath1 for putting up a five-star review on the Apple Podcasts. So this week's interview is with Anne-Marie Schrouder, Anne-Marie is an international speaker, consultant, and facilitator on diversity, inclusion, and belonging. She's also the author of Being Brown in a Black and White World, Conversations for Leaders on Race, Racism, and Belonging, which was released in April 2021. In this conversation with Anne-Marie, we discuss the journey inside her book, the trials and tribulations she faced, the both and and the value of three concepts, and her work with business leaders to help simulate change, drive motivation, and create impact. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com, and please do consider dropping your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie Schrouder, it's lovely to have you piped in from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, a city I know well. In your own words, Anne-Marie, how would you like to describe yourself? Oh, in my own words. Um, how would I like to describe myself? Physically, emotionally, professionally? <laughs> Up to you. I am... I am a biracial, female-identified um, speaker, author, facilitator, um, someone who's mother, someone who's passionate about uh, equity, inclusion, diversity, and, uh, and healing the racial divide. So your book, which um, came out this year, yes. uh, Being Brown in a Black and White world um i i felt like it was a, a kind of a coming out book how yeah. would you how would you like to describe your book yeah that's a good way to put it uh it, it, it mm. yes i i agree because it has it, it's about my life and um nuggets of wisdom i hope for um for leaders of all kinds um but focused on leaders in business I didn't intend to have it be a coming out book. <laughs> that wasn't my plan. Um, but the more I wrote and thought about it, the less possible it was to write a book with heart and, and that I was in without including that. So yeah, I've had to, um, I've had to be brave. As you, as you read the book, you what I, what I mean by that somehow is that you come out in waves. <laughs> there's, yes. there's an element of, oh, what is to be biracial? Then it is bisexual or, or lesbian. And then, and then this idea of the and, uh, both together. And so that's how I kind of lived the book. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, thank you for the, for the feedback. It's, you know, I, how I wrote it isn't necessarily how it's going to be received, but yeah, I didn't put everything out at once. It was, 
because it was a journey and the telling of that journey facilitated those stages for sure. So um, you, you, you use a lot of your poetry uh, in the book and as a writer and, and a creative myself, I was wondering if Anne-Marie had more challenge or what was the, let's say the difference in the exposure of poetry versus your personal story. I mean, of course they're linked, but mm -hmm. there's a creative, so you could publish your poems by themselves. I could, yeah, I and might. There's, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and then there's the, the personal angst and, and your personal journey. I was just wondering if there was any comparison in the exposure of those two elements in you. Comparison in the, I think I need you to explain the question a little bit more. What do you well, mean? Well, so when you publish creative work, um, or like a, a, a whether it's a, a novel or a poem or a photograph, there's a, there's an exposure of yourself through that creative process. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other one, which is just writing about you natively. I mean, this is me, right. this is who I am. And these are my woes yeah. and my emotions. And, and I was just wondering if there was any difference or it's just for you, it's one and the same. Oh no, not one and the same at all. No, no. And, and the poem was another step in, you know, another level of fear <laughs> of level of, Oh my gosh, do I want to do this? But the, but the poems, um, yeah. So way more, um, feeling exposed with the poetry to answer your question mm. simply. Um, and they're the, they're the, they're the, they're how my heart speaks and how I write from my heart. And I, I really wanted to make sure that I was providing a space for people to connect both from a heart space and a head space. So I kind of had to put them in there. It wasn't really a choice, but I was kicking and screaming the whole way. <laughs> no, don't make me do it. <laughs> talking yeah, to I'm, yourself. Yes. Talking to myself. Yes. Yeah. And in convincing my, I mean, I'm glad I did it in the end um, because I wanted to show up in the pages, right? I didn't want it to be an intellectual exercise. I wanted people to feel the journey and i hope that it's i hope that that's what happens for people when they read it one of the certainly the tenets of what i like to write about and you, you use the word brave before we also cited brene brown in the book we need to show up both personally and professionally mm -hmm. and if I, that's the for me the biggest takeaway that i have as a white man reading your book because of course, there's, you know, reading the words on a, on a page, there's your story and trying to link into that and have empathy. The thing I, I, can, I continually see as the necessary thing is to be able to bring our personal side into the professional space. And, and it's been this longstanding, per, well, joke, I think, to just think that you can go to work and be professional. Mm -hmm. as if we can compartmentalize who we are, how we slept the night before, the argument we had with our spouse or, you know, partner, whatever, the morning before mm -hmm. going to work. All of this is, of course, part of our baggage. I mean, you know, not that even more so with the bigger context elements. Right. And, and I feel like being, the, having that courage to bring our personal story is actually will also bring your own ethical framework 
because that is necessarily personal into the workspace. And, and that, I mean, for me, that's what I feel is one of the most important things in your book, this ability to be personal and professional and not be any less for it, for being personal. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, some of us, by virtue of our different identities and, and where we fall in the in the social location, right, dominant group, non-dominant group, have the the ability, the, the privilege even to bring our personal selves to work um, because the context supports that. And then others of us who who fall within marginalized groups or historically disadvantaged groups, there's a barrier to that bringing your your personal self to work. You know, I'll give you an example. Um, if you're heterosexual or straight, you can talk about your family at work and it's just something that you do, right? So when we start talking about LGBTQ, 2SI plus inclusive spaces and people say, well, there's no room for that. You know, we don't need to talk about sexual orientation in the workplace, but we do. Every time somebody heterosexual talks about their family, it's there, right? Just by virtue of being able to talk about it and say, my wife or my husband, you know, as an opposite sex or opposite gendered person. So we're not asking for anything different. We're asking for the space to be opened up enough to be able to bring that part of our identity to work and have it be held in the same way as somebody who's who's heterosexual. In trying to bring the, the notions of diversity and inclusion into the workplace, uh, very much there are different things, right? There's this diversity of mindset and then there's the inclusion which makes for the space that's safe enough for people to feel that they can participate and contribute right. and, and are a valued element of it. We're, we're still far away from getting a, a proper, let's say, s safety or a, a stronger implementation. So in your work, I, I was wondering um, what would be the best, strongest arguments to bring it around or put in maybe another way or adding to it is how does it actually get manifested? How does it become a reality? What are the best ways for it to become a reality? Inclusion in the workplace? Yeah. Well, I operate from, um, from the belief that inclusion is something we create over time together. And, and my personal opinion is that we, we haven't come as far as we should have or could have in the last few decades, because we're focusing a lot on the D of the DNI, the diversity piece, and less on the inclusion. And that when we, when we look at inclusion, we try to do it. You can't do inclusion, right? You create it. So, um, so, so working with organizations, um, what we do is we help them to build the, the culture that allows for people to um, feel a sense of community, to feel a sense of belonging. How do we do that? Well, you know, we, we build opportunities for people to connect. We create opportunities for people to do things together. Um, that's what a community is, right? And you feel held in that community and seen in that community. And because of that, awareness is going to increase about the, the quote unquote differences among us and similarities. We get to know each other more. And then as we get to know each other more and connect more, we use that information to build greater sense of belonging, right? If I know a little bit more about you and I know, you know, 
things that are important to you, then I can weave that into how I do things or what I offer or what my benefits plan is, right? To take it from one end to the other. Um, and those are things that are important. You know, the little things like, you know, remembering that it was a special event or, you know, an important occasion to somebody might need X benefit. So let's make sure the benefit package acknowledges different needs. Let's say that uh, diversity and inclusion is part of a, a wave of different things that business leaders need to look at. Mm -hmm. And so other things include things like uh, sustainable development, corporate mm -hmm. social responsibility, mm -hmm. and, um, and the typical, and digital is another one actually. So, uh, I mean, of course it's on a different kind of scale, but in each of the cases, my observation for having worked in big business is that these are actually mindsets. Mm -hmm. And yet in all three cases, what typically happens is that we uh, pronounce a director of, or right. of diversity. Yeah. Uh, and in, in my specific memory uh, at L'Oreal was that we, uh, we, we appointed a diversity director worldwide who was black. Mm -hmm. a black male. And, um, and I, I just, I, I always thought whether you do, you're the director of digital, you know, the, the, the CDO, the chief digital officer, the chief CSR officer, the mm -hmm. it, it seems like the go-to mechanism, but at the end of the day, A, you can't dictate these types of things. You can't tell somebody to be digital. It's about being digital and, and owning it each to their own way digital, uh, responsible, uh, and including the ability at an, a granular level within the organization to understand the vocabulary and the way things have to happen because these micro moments every day are how it falls in or falls out. Absolutely. Place. And so what do you think about uh, appointing these mm -hmm. v VPs of whatever mindset we're looking at. Yeah, well, I think it's, mm, I have a, a, have a love-hate relationship with it. I think it's important that companies acknowledge that this is a necessary component of, of who they are and that they, and that they need to weave it in, okay? So I think initially appointing someone and hopefully they have a budget, <laughs> hopefully they have a department, right? So it's not just a, a, a title, to actually effect change. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing if that person title department is able to do the work of weaving this mindset and this energy and this awareness into the various aspects of the company so that over time, you don't need that department anymore mm. or that individual, um, ideally, right? What's helpful about having somebody with that lens that that it's that that is that their focus is that if you position that person properly, and by that I mean they shouldn't be a manager, they should be reporting to the CEO, and they should be at decision-making tables all the time, that they can help to infuse that way of being through their questions, right? Through their challenges, through show, pointing out things, shining a light on. Um, and that's what we want. And so I think it can be really helpful to have someone in that role. 
um, to help us to develop or de that mindset and, and uh, sharpen that lens or build that muscle. Um, the downside is if we're relying on that person to do it and we're not all hopping on the train or whatever the right analogy would be in this case to, to do that lifting together, then we're not benefiting. And then it falls on that one person or that one department. And then we don't, it doesn't become part of our DNA, which is what you want. One of the things you mentioned, and I certainly discovered this through my research, uh, which is the value of three. Can you describe what is the value of three and maybe update it for me? Sure. Well, in my, I don't, maybe update, but in, in, so my way of explaining it is when you have one person, they are like, they could be the token person. Um, they're alone. So speaking up might be much more difficult. Um, when you hear something from, from that per, one person's perspective, it's easier to shoot it down or, or not really pay attention. So that's a lonely place. And it's a really challenging place to be for a number of reasons. When you have two people, well, if those two people don't agree, then we can come right down the middle, polarize and just do whatever we want because, oh, you two can't agree. So then, well, you know, whoever those two are, two people of color, you know, two people from the LGBT community, whatever. Um, if you have three, it becomes that that third person can be the balancer because if the two don't agree, then the one person hopefully will agree with one. And we can start to have a dialogue that doesn't polarize and separate and disregard the two people because they don't you know, they don't agree. Um, so that's, that's how I explain the power of three. In, in the specific element of this uh, concept, this construct of race, there's one of the things that I observe, and I, let's say I face it from a white angle, being called white seems um, as banal as saying um, I'm a human being. Uh, which, of course, at the end of the day is what we should all be thinking of. But as a Black person, I, I, or being called Black, I, I, I feel like it's such a, a broad term, irrespective of, let's say, the, the, the sense that it could be derogatory or not. It's just such a ridiculously broad term. And, and, and yet, I do feel that there is a specific type of definition to it as it comes to the way this movement has been coming. So what I mean by that is that Black, um, let's say, could encompass a whole 54 countries of Africa. Uh, then yeah. there are the Caribbean countries. But, mm -hmm. And then there's Black American, which mm -hmm. sort of has a different kind of category within it all. Anyway, when we come to three people, <laughs> Right, How, we're you know three different black. Let's say if we want to stay within that category, you know, if you are a Caribbean and a uh, second person is um, Senegalese and the third person is Moroccan, whatever. Why on earth would they have the same opinion? <laughs> That's a good point, and that you know I I hear a lot from uh, from folks who are black in, in business that you know people think we're all the same. People don't understand the difference between our between cultures and their vast differences, right? Language differences, cultural practices, beliefs. Like, absolutely. And you know, the, the sadness is that um, 
we are often lumped into one category together. And, and we could say the same about many identities, right? That we don't take the, take the minute to take the time to think about the diversity within a community and the implications of the diversity within a community and how important that is. So we, we tend to talk, as you were mentioning before, about diversity and less about inclusion. And so certainly in my experience, I was far more interested in diversity. Uh, and, and, uh, and I explained that by saying what I wanted on my executive team mm -hmm. was to have diversity of inputs, diversity mm -hmm. of perspective, because I was certainly confronted with situations where, uh, where I might have been the only non of one country or non of a, a different school system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the level of challenge with diversity can, can be so much deeper and crusted, the lack of diversity. And so forgetting having visible diversity mm -hmm. or invisible diversity, at least you know, like a handicapped person or whatever, or a sexual preference, it's even a difficulty just to have a different way of expressing yourself Absolutely. Because yeah. I went to Harvard and you go to that city school called Yale. Oh, well, you know, you're just from, you're from down there. Right. Oh gosh. Right. And yeah. we split hairs as someone something on a, on a, in a book I was reading. Sometimes we will make up the silliest of arguments just because we don't, it, the most, we get violently disagreeing, but we're absolutely in the smallest little compartment of an echo chamber within our thing. Mm -hmm. So we, 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 we have challenge already in most cases of bringing diversity of opinion when it's a bunch of white guys around the table. <laughs> yeah, it can be very challenging. Definitely. Yeah. And so when I was looking at the arguments for bringing it in, like to back to my former question, oftentimes I was looking at whether it was the, the notion of the value of three or diversity of opinion in general, is to try to relate it to a performance element. And that, I felt that that was the most solid argument when you're dealing with institutional or, you know, a, a traditional white male run or dominated organizations, because that's numbers and at the end of the day. But the problem we have is, even if we don't go with the number routine, yeah. is that we have shareholders who are still not on board with the program right. because they still want the performance. And so mm -hmm. the, the, how does one tackle this chain? Because it's kind of all linked in. Because if, if you're not performing, because if you don't exist, if you're not profitable, you go out of business, yes. you serve no purpose. Right. Yes, that's true. So, yeah. uh, so you're still beholden to shareholders mm -hmm. who might be saying, I don't care about the way you do it, I, I need to have my quarterly numbers come in. Right. And, and so uh, which part of the chain do we need to be focusing on? Is it you know, down at the, in each little department within the boardroom or the com executive committee in the shareholder room? How do you, how do you approach those elements? That's a big topic, I guess. Who in terms of DNI, in terms of yeah. wrapping their heads around it? Well, I, yeah. you know, it has to happen everywhere in every department. I, when I work with an organization, we start with leadership because if the leadership doesn't get it, nothing changes, right? 
And then they must have the role. They must also have the role, not only of pushing it down, but pushing it back, if you will, versus the shareholders. And I think that that's a trickier conversation for them to have. They might now sort of understand that if I get into this type of mindset, it's going to allow me to recruit a wider, more engaged community and so on. And that might be good down here, but I need to, to tick up and show in the numbers as well, because if I'm going down, I get fired. Right. Well, and we do know that um, diversity and inclusion, not diversity alone, but having that inclusion piece, right, the feeling, what it, what it feels like in an organization for, for folks, um, increases people's engagement, increases satisfaction, increases productivity. Um, if we have an environment where people can speak up, which is the whole point, right? Diversity only helps an organization when we can share our, our perspectives and then we are heard and then those perspectives can be folded in and used in terms of, you know, how we outreach or how we create a product or how we, you know, how we provide a service, et cetera. Um, so when we have an inclusive environment and that diversity is present to, to share those different perspectives, we know also through research that innovation and creativity increase. So those are all pretty good um, arguments for a, a more robust return on investment. Right, a more robust ROI. So if we can reach more people, if we can, if we can have a broader customer base, because oh, why, why didn't I think of that? Of course we have to fill in the blank, right? Wow, this whole we've missed this whole segment of the population because our product only does X. What if we add this piece? Oh my goodness, right? Um, I think that's a conversation we can have with shareholders to show that this is not just a nice thing to do. You so know. I I want to I'm going to dig in on that a second because certainly I I've seen the the data points with regard to the diversity of women and mm-hmm. then the inclusion of women's perspectives. I mean ninety mm-hmm. whatever it is eighty percent or seventy percent whatever of products the decision making is done by women on this yeah. earth. It's a lot. <laughs> and so I I the the relationship between a woman or a female a bigger presence three or more. And the success that therefore comes from smarter thinking, fuller thinking, inclusion of other thoughts. As I was mentioning before, we started talking how women's studies also include inclusion, if you will, in a bigger topic of other minorities. Right. But but when it comes down to, let's say, race or or I don't know, religion, it it, it seems much more specious to come up with a a larger population research to show the, the numbers. So, because mm. if you, you say, well, if I have an Indian, an Asian and a, an African, is that better than three Indians? You know, and, and how it gets very difficult to, yeah. to warrant and justify through these numbers. And so you, I feel that a the the leader must feel personally engaged in the topic, forgetting about numbers, and and just feel as the leader that this is what it's about. There's the ethical component, but just how somehow it needs to link into their personal journey to truly get it. Absolutely, yeah. You need you need to have a strong why, and it needs to be doesn't need to be, but it it really helps your your people to to lean into that with you if it's if it's personal you know this is why we're doing diversity and inclusion I'm not doing it but this is why diversity and inclusion is something we're committed to this is what it means for me 
this is these are my aha moments around this. No matter what who you are, what how you identify, there's there's a there's a a moment where there's you know the 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 veil is lifted or the blinders come off, and you're like, oh my gosh, like how did I not see this, this, and this? And and the impact of that. So um, you know, just the other day I had a conversation with a group of leaders I was working with about tell, does your team know your why? Like, first of all, what is it? And then have you shared that with your team? You know, and some of them had and some of them hadn't. Um, but it's so powerful when we do, because we are talking about human beings. We are talking about the human experience. We are talking about valuing human experiences and, and the value that that provides to not just what we're doing in a company, but how we do it. So why wouldn't we lean in with our own story about why we want to do this? Why we think this is so important. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Uh, I, there are other things I want to talk about, but it, it, my mind just jumped to it now. And and I, as if I'm, I'm if I'm saying correct, you didn't mention Black Lives Matter in the book, and I was wondering if that was intentional, or the I mean the specific movement, the black the Black Lives Matter words in in itself, I didn't see it appear. Of course, you talk about uh, George Floyd and you talk about different elements of it, but it, so I was just wondering if that was intentional or, uh, or other. Not in, hmm, it's a good question. Not intentional. I didn't say I'm not going to put them, not going to mention it in the book. So no, not intentional. Um, I think by the time I got to writing the, the book this way, it was such a, it was the, the personal element for me and my own growth and my own awareness was such a focus for me in terms of sharing the story and linking it to the, to the work that I do. Um, that it just, it, it just didn't show up and black lives matter. I mean, I certainly, I know, I know about the movement. I followed the movement. Right. But I, it hasn't been a, it hasn't been something that I've leaned into actively beyond you know, how we talk about it and, and all of those things, following and, and being behind it and understanding it and sharing that with, with the people that I speak to when we talk about race and why it's important. But no, that's a good question. Hmm. Well, I'm hmm. glad I did that, Marie. Yeah, uh, I, and, and I, maybe, Minter, can I just add you, maybe that would, that would be, you know, in my book I talk about it never was black enough for the black kids, like that, maybe that would put me back in that camp. If you were blacker, Anne-Marie, you would have talked about Black Lives Matter. And it's very possible. Well, that certainly is what I, I was uh, messaging. Because <laughs> in the end of the day, Anne-Marie, you, you're, you're fighting a number of battles. And, and so woman, mm-hmm. biracial, at one point you say bisexual, mm-hmm. lesbian, or you, 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 <laughs> I don't want to end up with the wrong <laughs> term um, because that's complicated. 
but these are all different battles and uh, yes. you can say that this is your journey and one of the um the things you know i like I, I liked in your book you talk about this your daughter's sign yeah um, she says everyone is awesome in their own way even when they are black and white yeah describe to us how you reacted to that and and the the say the fight within Anne marie that's gone through yeah well, I'm, I'm smiling now. I love that. You know, she just took it down um, a, a few weeks ago, a few months ago. It's been on the window for quite a while. My first reaction to that was, oh, it's grammatically incorrect. <laughs> you know, it should be black or white, you know, and I, I didn't say anything to her, but that was the dialogue in my mind. Um, and, uh, and I love the sign and I thought it was great. She did it herself. You know, she knows what I do for a living. Maybe we were talking about something or she heard me say something and, and boop, it appeared on her window. Um, as I continued my own journey into my own racial identity and what that meant and, and where I feel a sense of belonging and where I don't and, and what that meant and all the judgment and shame and everything that goes along with that. Um, what, what, I, what I came to and what I was able to see was, it, you know, it wasn't a mistake. And it, and it because of my own healing around my racial identity that brought me to a place of both and rather than either or, you know, not black or white, not having to choose one or the other, but both and together and what, and what that means. Um, it kind of became a sign that was for me. It kind of became a sign like, wake up, mom. <laughs> what are you talking about? White? Hello. Um, and, uh, and that was beautiful. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment for me. And I, you know, those of us that have kids know we learn from our children. We learn a Indeed. Lot yeah. Those why my mommy does this do. So um, you talk about the both and construct and I, I've always looked at the word and as a, a wonderful word, usually in opposition to the, but word, what you specifically talked about, which is that it helps with engagement. And I, I think one of the biggest problems that we have in business in general is, is a lack of engagement. Mm, and yeah. so I, I tend to get really excited when I see, ah, this is a way to improve engagement. Describe to us how this improves engagement. Well, I'll give you a concrete example. It was um, that, you know, we all have our own perspective on a, on a situation. And let's say there's a disagreement or let's say um, we're in two different potentially polar opposites. And I'm using the quotation marks because sometimes we sometimes feel, things feel so diametrically opposed. When we use and that that puts us in an either or camp, right? It's me or you, us or them. I'm right. You're wrong. If we can come at something with a both and, I can have a conversation with you that that lets you see or hear where I'm coming from, what my story is, what my perspective is, and create space for you to tell me yours. Yeah, possibly I could go even further. I could I could enter into a dialogue with you, um, contextualizing that this is this is. Um, this is my perspective. This is where I'm feeling, where I'm coming from. I recognize that these are some of the things that you're dealing with and invite you into the conversation of, of both and, right? And so 
recognizing that we're we're each gonna you know if you could if you could see me I'm holding hands on both sides we're each coming from a different perspective potentially a different place a way of seeing a way of an experience history and we're bringing both of those together and having a conversation hearing each other um, asking questions learning together so that we can move forward in a different way so Naturally, in a brainstorming world, that seems terribly sensible. Mm-hmm. In in yes. an executive world, we sometimes need to make decisions. Absolutely. And and the so that ends up like there's your idea, and then there's her idea, or mm-hmm. there's two people's ideas, and somehow one or t'other sometimes needs to be decided on. It it can't necessarily be a mesh, a meshing of both. But true. Specifically, what I was looking at was how does that push engagement factor? So the both and philosophy, or at least the both and idea, you you allow for people. Well, you you presumably also need to allow for listening mm-hmm. and time to listen, Absolutely. because otherwise Absolutely. it's you know the CEO speaking about her specific idea and then everyone listens to that and right. doesn't allow space for and others but right. in in the element of engagement because i think that is a real issue i mean let's just without talking about race or any of the other minorities does there wh- how do you describe how it can push engagement in well it, because you're you're it's it's a way of approaching something that creates the space for people to be able to share mm-hmm. that that invites the possibility that there's more than one approach more than one way of seeing something that that creates the it's a beautiful i mean it's a, to me it's a beautiful space of there's more mm-hmm. right it's not just this perspective there's more and so in the creation of that yeah. um we're, we're inviting people to engage. Right. We're inviting people to share. Right. And bring their opinions. So one of the challenges that I know I faced, Anne-Marie, and this is like one of those personal avowals, was criticism. And so levying criticism is always complicated when you're, you know, the boss and you've got a big team and, uh, there are ways to do it with empathy. There are ways to deliver, uh, you know, that, that idea is shit, right? This is not the right way to say it. Maybe, well, you know, you could improve your idea. Yet, even when I tried to find the nicest or the most appropriate way, sometimes I didn't always surely deliver the most nicest. But when you're delivering criticism to a minority as a white male, in a boardroom or in business in general. Today, that doesn't seem, well, to use the easy, the minimum easy, uh, at, at some other level, it seems like an outright dangerous proposition. That's the way I feel about it. That's certainly the, what I experience. And back in, in my day, this is a long time ago, let's say certainly pre-Black um, Lives Matter and, and such, but if a person was knowingly gay or knowingly obviously female or uh, or of a minority person of color, 
it was it was much more difficult to know how to deliver that criticism without being called out. Absolutely, I agree. And it and and th these days it's it's even more difficult because we have heightened sensitivity, heightened awareness to to what systemic racism looks like, to what systemic racism um, how it manifests itself. Um, I've had a few conversations recently about this topic, and I think in those situations, it is important for us to recognize the role of our identity in, in conversations, in how our criticism or feedback or input is received by someone else. It's also important um, to understand the context within which someone else is going to be receiving that input or feedback. Um, so just as an example, if, it, if it's somebody who's uh, black or a person of color um, or indigenous, you know, walking through the world within the reality of systemic racism on a daily basis um, chips away at you. Yeah. And so, you know, we talk a lot in this work about the difference between intention and impact. You can intend to give feedback. The impact could be you know, it's a personal attack or, you know, it's because I'm a person of color or I'm a woman or whatever. <clears throat> so I think, you know, back to the both and place, if we can, if we can, if we come to those conversations with an, with an awareness of intention versus impact, with an awareness of the different weights that people bear based on their identity as they move through the world, be it skin color, be it gender, um, be it uh, disability, then, I talk a lot in, in DNI about not just what we do, but how we do it. So how would we have that conversation? How would we provide that feedback? Um, and I think the how makes a big, big difference. I certainly agree. And I think it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, it, there, it can be very difficult. Yeah, in, yeah. In, in all of those things, right? Recognizing another person's context um, being sensitive to their lived experience when you may have no idea what that is. Um, but just, you know, understanding that there are factors at play that are, that are, that could conflate, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but could mm -hmm. get in the way of somebody hearing what you're saying and taking that in, in a way that's productive rather than feeling attacked. So I have a couple more personal uh, questions. Um, one that deeply uh, I share with you is, is that both of us have a grandfather that was killed in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on what that meant for you, because you mention it, but you don't really talk more about it. Well, that's an interesting question and an interesting story. I, you know, my, my mother's father um, was killed when she was three. So she didn't grow up knowing him. Um, which incidentally is exactly my father's age is it? when his father went the last time. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I grew up, you know, seeing this man's picture at my grandmother's house at, at my house, you know, and, and a sense of like reverence for who he was, you know, for all sorts of reasons, right. Missing and, and missing him and, and right. Love and all that stuff. Um, and when you, when I think about, you know, the side of the war <laughs> that he was on, <laughs> you mm -hmm. 
you know, we could get into the, we could get into the weeds on that one in a, in a quick minute. Um, that adds a whole other layer. Like I often wonder like, what would my, if, if he had lived, if he had lived and seen my mother marry a black man, oh my gosh, like what would that have, what, what, what would he have said done? You know, if he had lived and, and met me and the work that I do, like, I can only, I don't know. I don't know him. I don't know him as a person. There, there's all sorts of reasons why, um, you know, people have specific ideologies, but he was, he was an Austrian fighting in the Nazi party. Hello. <laughs> so maybe one day I'll write about that. You know, that that's a, it's yeah. Lots of texture. Texture is a very good word. Yeah, texture is a very good word. And, and it, you know, it's specific to my experience that my mother is Austrian. She's not just white. She's Austrian. There's a whole layer to that, right? Um, my grandmother was Austrian. And, you know, what did Austrians learn about people of color? What were my, ch- I, could, I could show you, I can't find them right now, but I, I remember some of the children's books I read that were that my that we got on vacation in Austria that we brought back and the, the horrible stereotypes in there. Right. So 50 yeah, years ago. <laughs> no kidding. So um, it, it, this this question is um, a little risque, uh, but I'm going to try it anyway, because okay. you had, don't, oh, uh, therefore, a white mother and a black father. Still do. Yeah. That's right. So, well, that's right. But I, <laughs> yes, that's correct. Sorry about that. But I, what I meant by somehow, I feel like having a white mother and a black father versus a black mother and a white mother, a white father is a very different organization. And I wondered how you could qualify. I, of course, you can't sort of imagine had you had it differently, but somehow mama bear, the mother influence is, and it seems to have been in your life preponderant somehow and I think that's the, the case in my family. My wife has been more present with my children. Maybe that's a social construct, but she's had a bigger impact on them because she mothered them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I wonder to what extent that changes or what could have changed for you if you'd gone the other way around. Yeah, I have thought about that a lot and I've had conversations with, with friends a lot about that. My opinion is my uninformed opinion because I've only had one life (laughs) Um, that given the amount of time I spent with my mother and my maternal grandmother because my mother was a homemaker she was a and my Oma right she was able my mother was able to spend the days with me my dad worked and he worked two jobs often Um, and my mother's mother my Oma lived in the same city as us. So I spent a lot of time with her too. So it's no surprise that I'm closer to my mother's side of the family, that I speak German, that I understand European culture and that I'm, you know, not black enough because I'm, I'm like a tea bag. I'm steeped in that much, much more than my father's culture. And had my mother been Jamaican and my father had been Austrian, and if she had been a homemaker, then I would have had a completely different experience. We would have gone to Jamaica for long periods of time and, and hung out with my, with the Jamaican side of my family. No question, because that's how our family was organized in the seventies and right. And, and the way that um, our family was um, just 
the things that we are able to do together. Um, I think in, in my case, and so we could extrapolate to, to what you're saying about, you know, who's black and who's white, right? Our house reflected European culture. The food we ate reflected European culture because my mom was cooking. My dad cooked too on the weekends. And so I know what ackee and saltfish are and, you know, all, you know, some of the Jamaican foods. But yeah, our, if you walked into my house as a child, you wouldn't necessarily know that a Jamaican lived there just to look around as physical evidence, right? What's on the walls and the cultural artifacts around. Um, so I think that's, I, I think it's, it makes a difference. You know, and, and if I think about friends, you know, biracial friends that I grew up with, um, you know, I can't speak to their experience, but I, I, you know, even something is, I'm going to use the word simple. I don't mean simple in, in terms of easy, but even if you think about hair, who does your hair? What kind of hairstyles did I have? My hair was a disaster. <laughs> you know, it was fuzzy. It was all over the place. Um, you know, and, and, and my, my biracial friends whose, whose moms were black, A, they had different hair texture, but they had braids and, you know, um, and, and I'm at a deficit now because I don't know how to do cornrows. Corns, yeah. And, and, you know, my daughter's dad does those because <laughs> mm. he's black and he happens to know how to braid really well, you know? I so, do. you know, we, we pass on our culture because we are able to spend time with, now, I think I'm not saying that men don't pass on their culture and, and, it, and it can happen, but you're going to get more of that passing on from, into, from parent or parents who you spend more time with just because you're around each other a lot. You're going you're gonna to soak up that way of looking at the world. You're going to hear stories from that person's culture. You're going you're gonna to know them and their nuances and, and learn from them. And, and some of that's cultural. So yeah, I think I would be a very different um, being if my mother was black and my dad was white. Well, it, it, it does somehow corroborate the idea, which I mentioned earlier, of the majority of purchasing decisions are done by women. Mm. And, and so that goes to why your house decor, probably largest input was because your mom went down to the, the furniture store and, and made the practical, pragmatic decision to buy the, well, she, he might've gone with hmm. her. I don't However, know, but I don't, yeah, I don't know about that, but yes, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Decision-making and, and what comes into the house and, and yeah. Well, they For say sure. when the, the, the car, so the cars, I, 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 my father worked in the automobile industry and I worked in the cosmetics industry for God's sake. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, when the the man says, "Well, I want this car. It has to have gum, bum, bum. It's got to have this much horsepower." And blah, 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 blah. And the woman says, "How comfortable is it? You know, can you get in the right. back seat with the the toddler chair and so on?" And right. and so, well, as long as it has my fourteen hundred HP, yeah. But we're not going to get that. One. We're going to get this one. <laughs> I can't imagine my parents ever having that conversation. <laughs> just, just to say, okay. um, but I know what you mean, and and and. Yeah, we bring different perspectives to decision making. And I've read that, yeah, that women make so many more of the more higher percentage of the decisions that men do in households. And I think it's done in different ways, of course. But anyway, so that was just a little bit of a red herring. But I certainly what it does is it corroborates the idea of the impact of the 
of your mother in your life, the mother's, the, the house, how it's decor, decorated. Uh, that's what I think it does. Anyway, that's my, that was my interpretation, Anne-Marie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So Anne-Marie, listen, how can, uh, I, well, I did want to get into your signature methodology, but I guess that's why people need to contact you should they want to know more. Tell us sure. uh, what people, what sort of people would you like to contact you? Uh, I mean, you, of course, you can be open to everybody, but, um, and, and specifically, where should they go to learn more about your work and get your book? Yeah, thank you. So um, people can find me on my website, which is uh, notcreativelyannemarieschrader.com. <laughs> Very easy to remember if you remember my name, annemarieschrader.com. The book is there. Um, and uh, you can read a little bit more about my signature methodology there, the ABCs of inclusion. I love to work with um, leaders who are wanting to lean into these conversations, to challenge themselves, to have um, more difficult conversations and to step into their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I lovingly call myself the can opener. Um, that's my gift. I, I help people to sort of crack open and be like, oh, oh my gosh, how did I not notice this? How did I not know this? And we and we start that journey and and, and go deeper. Um, and so uh, yeah, my my passion is to work with with leaders because as we said before, if the leader gets it. If the leaders get it, um, then it goes much further, much quicker in an organization. And I think that's critical for the success of making equity, diversity, and inclusion part of your DNA. Fabulous. Well, Anne-Marie, thank you for joining me on this little bit of a journey. I participate somehow. And thank you. Uh, I look forward to staying in touch. I would like that. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me, precipitating the danger To feel free, trust is a reason Still I won't tell the lie I sit here passively, hope for your respect Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself, there's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man building an urge I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man challenge my fate I'm a convinced man competitions innate A convinced man in the arms of a woman
revenges and struggle with deceit. Live for the challenge so life's not incomplete. What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. I'm a convinced man practicing my lines. I'm a convinced man hearing these confines. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man put to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.